0: Welcome to the Sleep Easy Podcast, the show that is designed to lull you to sleep. I'm your host, Elle, and I'm here to help you relax by taking your mind off of pending tasks, things you have to do tomorrow, things you could have done differently today, all the ruminating that goes on once your head hits the pillow. It's often called monkey mind, so think of me as the white noise that tames your monkey mind so that you can easily fall asleep. Do you remember that course in college where you simply could not stay awake? Join me as we delve into some deep thoughts you might still have little interest in. Now, turn the volume down so that I'm in the background. Make yourself comfortable. And let's get started. I have re-recorded our very first episode with a preface to this second and revised edition that was not included originally. As always, you can find this at Project Gutenberg. Let me introduce you to Flatland, a romance of many dimensions, written by A Square, also known as Edwin Abbott Abbott. First, let's learn a little bit about the author. This is a summary of a review in American Scientist magazine written by Professor Colin C. Adams. In 1884, the English minister, headmaster, and biblical and Shakespearean scholar Edwin Abbott Abbott produced a thin volume titled Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. It was both an introduction to the notion of higher dimensions and a satire of Victorian society and norms. At that time, there was substantial interest in the idea of higher dimensions, both within the scientific community and also in the more general population. Abbott's work provided a simple story that allowed regular audiences to grasp the idea of dimensions beyond the familiar three. Flatland helped to set the stage for many of the scientific advances to come. Of the more than 50 books that Abbott wrote, this is the one for which he is remembered. An important note for today's audience. Abbott's portrayal of women in the book was intended as a parody of Victorian customs which he himself deplored. In fact, he was a fierce supporter of women's rights. According to writings on his life and work, he was active in the women's suffrage movement. He worked tirelessly in support of the rights of women to have an education. Now, let's get started. Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions by A Square To the Inhabitants of Space in General, and H.C. in particular This work is dedicated by a humble native of Flatland, in the hope even as he was initiated into the mysteries of three dimensions, having been previously conversant with only two, so the citizens of that celestial region may aspire yet higher and higher to the secrets of four, five, or even six dimensions, thereby contributing to the enlargement of the imagination and the possible development of that most rare and excellent gift of modesty among the superior races of solid humanity. Preface to the Second and Revised Edition, 1884, by the Editor If my poor flatland friend retained the vigor of mind which he enjoyed when he began to compose these memoirs, I should not now need to represent him in this preface in which he desires. Firstly, to return his thanks to his readers and critics in Spaceland, whose appreciation has, with unexpected celerity, required a second edition of his work. Secondly, to apologize for certain errors and misprints for which, however, he is not entirely responsible. And thirdly, to explain one or two misconceptions. But he is not the square he once was. Years of imprisonment and still heavier burden of general incredulity and mockery have combined with the natural decay of old age to erase from his mind Many of the thoughts and notions, and much also of the terminology, which he acquired during his short stay in spaceland. He has, therefore, requested me to reply on his behalf to two special objections one of an intellectual, the other of a moral nature. The first objection is that a flatlander, seeing a line, sees something that must be thick to the eye as well as long to the eye. Otherwise, it would not be visible if it had not some thickness. And, consequently, he ought, it is argued, to acknowledge that his countrymen are not only long and broad, but also, though doubtless in a very slight degree, thick or high, this objection is plausible, and, to Spacelanders, almost irresistible, so that, I confess, when I first heard it, I knew not what to reply. But my poor old friend's answer appears to me completely to meet it. I admit, said he, when I mentioned to him this objection, I admit the truth of your critics' facts. But I deny his conclusions. It is true that we have really in flatland a third unrecognized dimension called height. Just as it is also true that you have really in spaceland a fourth unrecognized dimension called by no name at present, but which I will call extra height. But we can no more take cognizance of our height than you can of your extra height. Even I, who have been in spaceland, and have had the privilege of understanding for 24 hours the meaning of height, even I cannot comprehend it, nor realize it by the sense of sight or by any process of reason. I can but apprehend it by faith. The reason is obvious. Dimension implies direction, implies measurement, implies the more and the less. Now, all our lines are equally and infinitesimally thick or high, whichever you like. Consequently, there is nothing in them to lead our minds to the conception of that dimension. No delicate micrometer as has been suggested by one too hasty spaceland critic, would in the least avail us, for we should not know what to measure, nor in what direction. When we see a line, we see something that is long and bright. Brightness, as well as length, is necessary to the existence of a line. If the brightness vanishes, the line is extinguished. Hence, all my flatland friends, when I talk to them about the unrecognized dimension, which is somehow visible in a line, say, Ah, you mean brightness. And when I reply, No, I mean a real dimension, they at once retort, Then measure it, or tell us in what direction it extends. And this silences me for I can do neither. Only yesterday, when the chief circle, in other words, our high priest, came to inspect the state prison and paid me his seventh annual visit, and when, for the seventh time, he put me to the question, was I any better, I tried to prove to him that he was high, as well as long and broad, although he did not know it. What was his reply? You say I am high. Measure my highness and I will believe you. What could I do? How could I meet his challenge? I was crushed and he left the room triumphant. Does this still seem strange to you? Then put yourself in a similar position. Suppose a person of the fourth dimension Condescending to visit you were to say, whenever you open your eyes, you see a plane, which is of two dimensions, and you infer a solid, which is of three. But in reality, you also see, though you do not recognize, a fourth dimension, which is not color nor brightness nor anything of the kind, but a true dimension although I cannot point out to you its direction, nor can you possibly measure it. What would you say to such a visitor? Would not you have him locked up? Well, that is my fate, and it is as natural for us flatlanders to lock up a square for preaching the third dimension as it is for you spacelanders to lock up a cube for preaching the fourth. Alas, how strong a family likeness runs through blind and persecuting humanity in all dimensions. Points, lines, squares, cubes, extra cubes. We are all liable to the same errors. All alike the slaves of our respective dimensional prejudices. As one of your Spaceland poets has said, One touch of nature makes all worlds akin. Note, the author desires me to add that the misconception of some of his critics on this matter has induced him to insert in his dialogue with the sphere certain remarks which have a bearing on the point in question and which he had previously omitted as being tedious and unnecessary. On this point, the defense of the square seems to me to be impregnable. I wish I could say that his answer to the second or moral objection was equally clear and cogent. It has been objected that he is a woman-hater, and as this objection has been vehemently urged by those whom nature's decree has constituted the somewhat larger half of the Spaceland race, I should like to remove it, so far as I can honestly do so. But the Square is so unaccustomed to the use of the moral terminology of Spaceland that I should be doing him an injustice if I were literally to transcribe his defense against this charge. Acting, therefore, as his interpreter and summarizer, I gather that in the course of an imprisonment of seven years, he has himself modified his own personal views, both as regards women and as regards the Osocicles or lower classes. Personally, he now inclines to the opinion of the sphere that the straight lines are in many important respects Superior to the circles. But writing as a historian, he has identified himself, perhaps too closely, with the views generally adopted by Flatland, and, as he has been informed, even by Spaceland historians, in whose pages, until very recent times, the destinies of women and of the masses of mankind have seldom been deemed worthy of mention and never of careful consideration. In a still more obscure passage, he now desires to disavow the circular or aristocratic tendencies, which some critics have naturally credited him. While doing justice to the intellectual power with which a few circles have for many generations Maintain their supremacy over immense multitudes of their countrymen. He believes that the facts of Flatland, speaking for themselves without comment on his part, declare that revolutions cannot always be suppressed by slaughter and that nature, in sentencing the circles to infecundity, has condemned them to ultimate failure. And herein, he says, I see a fulfillment of the great law of all worlds, that while the wisdom of man thinks it is working one thing, the wisdom of nature constrains it to work another, and quite a different and far better thing. For the rest, he begs his readers not to suppose that every minute detail in the daily life of Flatland must needs correspond to some other detail in spaceland. And he hopes that, taken as a whole, his work may prove suggestive as well as amusing to those spacelanders of moderate and modest minds who, speaking of that which is of the highest importance but lies beyond experience, decline to say, on the one hand, this can never be. And on the other hand, it must needs be precisely thus, and we know all about it. Section 1 Of the Nature of Flatland I call our world flatland, not because we call it so, but it makes its nature clearer to you, my happy readers, who are privileged to live in space. Imagine a vast sheet of paper on which straight lines, triangles, squares, pentagons, hexagons, and other figures, instead of remaining fixed in their places, move freely about on or in the surface, but without the power of rising above or sinking below it, very much like shadows, only hard and with luminous edges, and you will then have a pretty correct notion of my country and countrymen. Alas, a few years ago, I should have said my universe, but now my mind has been open to higher views of things. In such a country, you will perceive at once that it is impossible that there should be anything of what you call a solid kind. But I dare say, you will suppose that we could at least distinguish by sight the triangles, squares, and other figures moving about as I have described them. On the contrary, we could see nothing of the kind, not at least so as to distinguish one figure from another, Nothing was visible nor could be visible to us except straight lines. And the necessity of this, I will speedily demonstrate. Place a penny on the middle of one of your tables in space and leaning over it, look down upon it. It will appear a circle. But now, drawing back to the edge of the table, Gradually lower your eye, thus bringing yourself more and more into the condition of the inhabitants of Flatland. And you will find the penny becoming more and more oval to your view. And at last, when you have placed your eye exactly on the edge of the table, so that you are, as it were, actually a Flatlander, the penny will then have ceased to appear oval at all and will have become, so far as you can see, a straight line. The same thing would happen if you were to treat in the same way a triangle or square or any other cutout of pasteboard. As soon as you look at it with your eye on the edge on the table, you will find that it ceases to appear to you a figure, and that it becomes in appearance a straight line. Take, for example, an equilateral triangle, who represents with us a tradesman of the respectable class. Figure 1 represents the tradesman as you would see him while you were bending over him from above. Figures 2 and 3 Represent the tradesman as you would see him if your eye were close to the level or all but on the level of the table. And if your eye were quite on the level of the table, and that is how we see him in flatland, you would see nothing but a straight line. When I was in Spaceland, I heard that your sailors have very similar experiences while they traverse your seas and discern some distant island or coast lying on the horizon. The far-off land may have bays, forelands, angles, in and out, to any number and extent. Yet, at a distance, you see none of these, unless indeed your sun shines bright upon them, revealing the projections and retirements by means of light and shade, nothing but a gray, unbroken line upon the water. Well, that is just what we see when one of our triangular or other acquaintances comes towards us in Flatland. As there is neither sun with us nor any light of such a kind as to make shadows, we have none of the helps to the sight that you have in Spaceland. If our friend comes closer to us, we see his line becomes larger. If he leaves us, it becomes smaller. But still, he looks like a straight line, be he a triangle, square, pentagon, hexagon, circle, what you will. A straight line he looks, and nothing else. You may, perhaps, ask how, under these disadvantageous circumstances, we are able to distinguish our friends from one another. But the answer to this very natural question will be more fitly and easily given when I come to describe the inhabitants of Flatland. For the present, let me defer this subject and say a word or two about the climate and houses in our country. Section 2 Of the Climate and Houses in Flatland As with you, so also with us, there are four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. There being no sun nor other heavenly bodies, It is impossible for us to determine the north in the usual way, but we have a method of our own. By a law of nature with us, there is a constant attraction to the south, and although in temperate climates this is very slight, so that even a woman in reasonable health can journey several furlongs northward without much difficulty yet the hampering effect of the southward attraction is quite sufficient to serve as a compass in most parts of our earth. Moreover, the rain, which falls at stated intervals, comes always from the north. It is an additional assistance, and in the towns we have the guidance of the houses, which of course have their sidewalls, running for the most part north and south, so that the roofs may keep off the rain from the north. In the country, where there are no houses, the trunks of the trees serve as some sort of guide. Altogether, we have not so much difficulty as might be expected in determining our bearings. Yet, in our more temperate regions in which the southward attraction is hardly felt, walking sometimes in a perfectly desolate plain where there have been no houses nor trees to guide me, I have been occasionally compelled to remain stationary for hours together, waiting till the rain came before continuing my journey. On the weak and aged, and especially on delicate females, The force of attraction tells much more heavily than on the robust of the male sex. So that it is a point of breeding if you meet a lady in the street, always give her the north side of the way. By no means an easy thing to do, always at short notice, when you are in rude health and in a climate where it is difficult to tell your north from your south. Windows there are none in our houses, for the light comes to us alike in our homes and out of them, by day and by night, equally at all times and in all places, whence we know not. It was in old days, with our learned men, an interesting and often investigated question, what is the origin of light? And the solution of it, Has been repeatedly attempted, with no other result than to crowd our lunatic asylums with the would be solvers. Hence, after fruitless attempts to suppress such investigations indirectly by making them liable to a heavy tax, the legislature, in comparatively recent times, absolutely prohibited them. I, alas, I alone in flatland, know now only too well the true solution of this mysterious problem. But my knowledge cannot be made intelligible to a single one of my countrymen. And I am mocked at, I, the sole possessor of the truths of space, and of the theory of the introduction of light from the world of three dimensions as if I were the maddest of the mad. But a truce to these painful digressions. Let me return to our houses. The most common form for the construction of a house is five-sided or pentagonal. The two northern sides constitute the roof and for the most part have no doors. On the east is a small door for the women. On the west, a much larger one for the men. The south side or floor is usually doorless. Square and triangular houses are not allowed, and for this reason. The angles of a square, and still more those of an equilateral triangle, being much more pointed than those of a pentagon, and the lines of inanimate objects such as houses being dimmer than the lines of men and women, it follows that there is no little danger lest the points of a square or triangular house residence might do serious injury to an inconsiderate or perhaps absent-minded traveler suddenly, therefore, running against them. In as early as the 11th century of our era, triangular houses were universally forbidden by law, the only exceptions being fortifications, powder magazines, barracks, and other state buildings, which it is not desirable that the general public should approach without circumspection. At this period, square houses were still everywhere permitted though discouraged by a special tax. But about three centuries afterwards, the law decided that in all towns containing a population above 10,000, the angle of a Pentagon was the smallest house angle that could be allowed consistently with the public safety. The good sense of the community has seconded the efforts of the legislature. And now, even in the country, the pentagonal construction has superseded every other. It is only now and then in some very remote and backward agricultural district that an antiquarian may still discover a square house. Section 3 Concerning the Inhabitants of Flatland The greatest length or breadth of a full-grown inhabitant of flatland may be estimated at about 11 of your inches. 12 inches may be regarded as a maximum. Our women are straight lines. Our soldiers and lowest classes of workmen are triangles, with two equal sides, each about 11 inches long, and a base or third side so short, often not exceeding half an inch, that they form at their vertices a very sharp and formidable angle. Indeed, when their bases are of the most degraded type, not more than an eighth part of an inch in size, they can hardly be distinguished from straight lines or women. So extremely pointed are their vertices. With us, as with you, these triangles are distinguished from others by being called isosceles, and by this name I shall refer to them in the following pages. Our middle class consists of equilateral or equal-sided triangles. Our professional men and gentlemen are squares, to which class I myself belong and five-sided figures or pentagons. Next above these come the nobility, of whom there are several degrees, beginning at six-sided figures or hexagons, and from thence rising in the number of their sides till they receive the honorable title of polygonal or many-sided. Finally, when the number of the sides becomes so numerous and the sides themselves so small that the figure cannot be distinguished from a circle, he is included in the circular or priestly order, and this is the highest class of all. It is a law of nature with us that a male child shall have one more side than his father, so that each generation shall rise, as a rule, one step in the scale of development and nobility. Thus, the son of a square is a pentagon, the son of a pentagon a hexagon, and so on. But this rule applies not always to the tradesmen, and less often to the soldiers, and to the workmen indeed can hardly be said to deserve the name of human figures, since they have not all their sides equal. With them, therefore, the law of nature does not hold, and the son of an isosceles, in other words, a triangle with two sides equal, remains isosceles still. Nevertheless, All hope is not shut out, even from the Isoccles, that his posterity may ultimately rise above his degraded condition. For, after a long series of military successes, or diligent and skillful labors, it is generally found that the more intelligent among the artisan and soldier classes manifest a slight increase of their third side or base, and a shrinkage of the two other sides. Intermarriages arranged by the priests between the sons and daughters of these more intellectual members of the lower classes generally result in an offspring approximating still more to the type of the equal-sided triangle. Rarely. In proportion to the vast numbers of isosceles births, is a genuine and certifiable equal-sided triangle produced from isosceles parents. Note: What need of a certificate? A spaceland critic may ask. Is not the procreation of a square son a certificate from nature herself? proving the equal-sidedness of the father? I reply that no lady of any position will marry an uncertified triangle. Square offspring has sometimes resulted from a slightly irregular triangle, but in almost every such case, the irregularity of the first generation is visited on the third which either fails to attain the pentagonal rank or relapses to the triangular. Such a birth requires, as its antecedents, not only a series of carefully arranged intermarriages, but also a long, continued exercise of frugality and self-control on the part of the would-be ancestors of the coming equilateral and a patient, systematic, and continuous development of the Isosocles intellect through many generations. The birth of a true equilateral triangle from Isosocles parents is the subject of rejoicing in our country for many furlongs around. After a strict examination conducted by the Sanitary and Social Board, The infant, if certified as regular, is with solemn ceremonial admitted into the class of equilaterals. He is then immediately taken from his proud yet sorrowing parents and adopted by some childless equilateral who is bound by oath never to permit the child henceforth to enter his former home or so much as look upon his relations again for fear lest the freshly developed organism may, by force of unconscious imitation, fall back again into his hereditary level. The occasional emergence of an equilateral from the ranks of his serf born ancestors is welcomed, not only by the poor serfs themselves, as a gleam of light and hope shed upon the monotonous squalor of their existence, but also by the aristocracy at large, for all the higher classes are well aware that these rare phenomena, while they do little or nothing to vulgarize their own privileges, serve as a most useful barrier against revolution from below. Had the acute angled rabble been all, without exception, absolutely destitute of hope and of ambition, they might have found leaders in some of their many seditious outbreaks so able as to render their superior numbers and strength too much, even for the wisdom of the circles. A wise ordinance of nature has decreed that In proportion, as the working classes increase in intelligence, knowledge, and all virtue, in that same proportion, their acute angle, which makes them physically terrible, shall increase also, and approximate to the comparatively harmless angle of the equilateral triangle. Thus, in the most brutal and formidable of the soldier class, Creatures almost on a level with women in their lack of intelligence, it is found that, as they wax in the mental ability necessary to employ their tremendous penetrating power to advantage, so do they wane in the power of penetration itself. How admirable is this law of compensation! And how perfect a proof of the natural fitness and I may almost say, the divine origin of the aristocratic constitution of the states in Flatland. By a judicious use of this law of nature, the polygons and circles are almost always able to stifle sedition in its very cradle, taking advantage of the irrepressible and boundless hopefulness of the human mind. Art also comes to the aid of law and order. It is generally found possible by a little artificial compression or expansion on the part of the state physicians to make some of the more intelligent leaders of a rebellion perfectly regular and to admit them at once into the privileged classes. A much larger number, who are still below the standard, Allured by the prospect of being ultimately ennobled, are induced to enter the state hospitals, where they are kept in honorable confinement for life. One or two alone of the more obstinate, foolish, and hopelessly irregular, are led to execution. Then the wretched rabble of the Isosocles, planless and leaderless are either transfixed, without resistance, by the small body of their brethren, whom the chief circle keeps in pay for emergencies of this kind, or else, more often, by means of jealousies and suspicions skillfully fomented among them by the circular party, they are stirred to mutual warfare and perish by one another's angles. No less than 120 rebellions are recorded in our annals, besides minor outbreaks numbered at 235, and they have all ended thus. Section 4. Concerning the Women If our highly pointed triangles of the soldier class are formidable, it may be readily inferred that far more formidable are our women. For if a soldier is a wedge, a woman is a needle, being, so to speak, all point, at least at the two extremities. Add to this the power of making herself practically invisible at will, and you will perceive that a female in flatland is a creature by no means to be trifled with. But here, perhaps, some of my younger readers may ask how a woman in flatland can make herself invisible. This ought, I think, to be apparent without any explanation. However, a few words will make it clear to the most unreflecting. Place a needle on the table, then, with your eye on the level of the table, look at it sideways, and you see the whole length of it, but look at it endways, and you see nothing but a point. It has become practically invisible. Just so is it with one of our women. When her side is turned towards us, we see her as a straight line. When the end containing her eye or mouth, for with us these two organs are identical, is the part that meets our eye, then we see nothing but a highly lustrous point. But when the back is presented to our view, then, being only sublustrous and, indeed, almost as dim as an inanimate object, her hinder extremity serves her as a kind of invisible cap. The dangers to which we are exposed for our women must now be manifest to the meanest capacity in spaceland. If even the angle of a respectable triangle in the middle class is not without its dangers, If to run against a working man involves a gash, if collision with an officer of the military class necessitates a serious wound, if a mere touch from the vertex of a private soldier brings with it danger of death, what can it be to run against a woman except absolute and immediate destruction? And when a woman is invisible, or visible only as a dim, sublustrous point, how difficult must it be, even for the most cautious, always to avoid collision? Many are the enactments made at different times in the different states of flatland in order to minimize this peril. And in the southern and less temperate climates, where the force of gravitation is greater, and human beings more liable to casual and involuntary motions, the laws concerning women are naturally much more stringent. But a general view of the Code may be obtained from the following summary. 1. Every house shall have one entrance in the eastern side for the use of females only, by which all females shall enter in a becoming and respectable manner, and not by the men's or western door. Note, when I was in Spaceland, I understood that some of your priestly circles have in the same way a separate entrance for villagers, farmers, and teachers of board schools. And they may approach in a becoming and respectful manner. 2. No female shall walk in any public place without continually keeping up her peace cry under penalty of death. Any female duly certified to be suffering from St. Vitus's dance, fits, chronic cold accompanied by violent sneezing, or any disease necessitating involuntary motions, shall be instantly destroyed. In some of the states, there is an additional law forbidding females, under penalty of death, from walking or standing in any public place, without moving their backs constantly from right to left, so as to indicate their presence to those behind them. Others oblige a woman, when traveling, to be followed by one of her sons, or servants, or by her husband. Others confine women altogether to their houses, except during the religious festivals. But it has been found by the wisest of our circles or statesmen that the multiplication of restrictions on females tends not only to be the debilitation and diminution of the race, but also to the increase of domestic murders to such an extent that a state loses more than it gains by a too prohibitive code. For whenever the temper of the women is thus exasperated by confinement at home or hampering regulations abroad, they are apt to vent their spleen upon their husbands and children. And in the less temperate climates, the whole male population of a village has been sometimes destroyed in one or two hours of simultaneous female outbreak. Hence, the three laws mentioned above suffice for the better regulated states and may be accepted as a rough exemplification of our female code. After all, Our principal safeguard is found, not in legislature, but in the interests of the women themselves. For, although they can inflict instantaneous death by a retrograde movement, yet, unless they can at once disengage their stinging extremity from the struggling body of their victim, their own frail bodies are liable to be shattered. The power of fashion is also on our side. I pointed out that in some less civilized states, no female is suffered to stand in any public place without swaying her back from right to left. This practice has been universal among ladies of any pretensions to breeding in all well-governed states as far back as the memory of figures can reach. It is considered a disgrace to any state that legislation should have to enforce what ought to be, and, as in every respectable female, a natural instinct. The rhythmical and, if I may so say, well-modulated undulation of the back in Our Ladies of Circular Rank is envied and imitated by the wife of a common equilateral, who can achieve nothing beyond a mere monotonous swing, like the ticking of a pendulum. And the regular tick of the equilateral is no less admired and copied by the wife of the progressive and aspiring Esosicles, In the females of whose family no back motion of any kind has become as yet a necessity of life. Hence, in every family of position and consideration, back motion is as prevalent as time itself, and the husbands and sons in these households enjoy immunity at least from invisible attacks not that it must be, for a moment supposed, that our women are destitute of affection. But unfortunately, the passion of the moment predominates in the frail sex over every other consideration. This is, of course, a necessity arising from their unfortunate confirmation. For as they have no pretensions to an angle, being inferior in this respect to the very lowest of the isosocles. They are consequently wholly devoid of brain power and have neither reflection, judgment, nor forethought, and hardly any memory. Hence, in their fits of fury, they remember no claims and recognize no distinctions. I have actually known a case where a woman has exterminated her whole household, and half an hour afterwards, when her rage was over and the fragments swept away, has asked what has become of her husband and her children. Obviously, then, a woman is not to be irritated as long as she is in a position where she can turn round. When you have them in their apartments, which are constructed with a view to denying them that power, you can say and do whatever you like. For they are then wholly impotent for mischief, and will not remember a few minutes hence the incident for which they may be at this moment threatening you with death, nor the promises which you may have found it necessary to make. In order to pacify their fury. On the whole, we get on pretty smoothly in our domestic relations, except in the lower strata of the military classes. There, the want of tact and discretion on the part of the husbands produces at times indescribable disasters. Relying too much on the offensive, weapons of their acute angles instead of the defensive organs of good sense and seasonable simulation, these reckless creatures too often neglect the prescribed construction of the women's apartments or irritate their wives by ill-advised expressions out of doors, which they refuse immediately to retract. Moreover, A blunt and stolid regard for literal truth indisposes them to make those lavish promises by which the more judicious circle can, in a moment, pacify his consort. The result is massacre, not, however, without its advantages, as it eliminates the more brutal and troublesome of the isosocles. And by many of our circles, the destructiveness of the thinner sex is regarded as one among many providential arrangements for suppressing redundant population and nipping revolution in the bud. Yet, even in our best regulated and most approximately circular families, I cannot say that the ideal of family life is so high. As with you in spaceland, there is peace, insofar as the absence of slaughter may be called by that name, but there is necessarily little harmony of tastes or pursuits, and the cautious wisdom of the circles has ensured safety at the cost of domestic comfort. In every circular or polygonal household, it has been a habit. From time immemorial, and now has become a kind of instinct among the women of our higher classes that the mothers and daughters should constantly keep their eyes and mouths towards their husband and his male friends. And for a lady in a family of distinction to turn her back upon her husband would be regarded as a kind of portent involving loss of status. But, as I shall soon shew, this custom, though it has the advantage of safety, is not without its disadvantages. In the house of the working man, or respectable tradesman, where the wife is allowed to turn her back upon her husband while pursuing her household avocations, there are at least intervals of quiet, when the wife is neither seen nor heard, except for the humming sound of the continuous peace cry. But in the homes of the upper classes, there is too often no peace. There, the voluble mouth and bright penetrating eye are ever directed towards the master of the household, and light itself is not more persistent than the stream of feminine discourse. The tact and skill which suffice to avert a woman's sting are unequal to the task of stopping a woman's mouth and as the wife has absolutely nothing to say and absolutely no constraint of wit sense or conscience to prevent her from saying it not a few cynics have been found to aver that they prefer the danger of the death dealing but inaudible sting to the safe sonorousness of a woman's other end. To my readers in space-land, the condition of our women may seem truly deplorable, and so indeed it is. A male of the lowest type of the Isosicles may look forward to some improvement of his angle and to the ultimate elevation of the whole of his degraded caste but no woman can entertain such hopes for her sex. Once a woman, always a woman, is a decree of nature, and the very laws of evolution seem suspended in her disfavor. Yet, at least we can admire the wise prearrangement which has ordained that, as they have no hopes, so they shall have no memory to recall and no forethought to anticipate the miseries and humiliations which are at once a necessity of their existence and the basis of the constitution of Flatland. We'll take a break and continue this story in a future episode. Please subscribe and share the Sleep Easy podcast with people you know. After all, we all want to have an easy night's sleep i welcome your feedback please visit the website and send me a message it's the sleepeasypodcast.com good night